You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. And now, I am extremely pumped up for today's guest. Uh, It is truly one of my favorite podcasts that I have done. That interview is coming up in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you that today's show is brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento. Locally owned for over 20 years, New Works has a fix for you. And remember, they're available around the clock 24-7 for your plumbing needs and repairs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N. E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. And again, remember, they're available around the clock for all of your needs. New Works has a fix for you. Check them out. Just go to NewWorksPlumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. My guest today is an iconic figure in the New York City sports landscape. She grew up in Boston. In 1987, she started at WFAN in its infancy. She covered all the New York sports, and less than 20 years later, she found herself in the Yankee broadcast booth working alongside John Sterling, where she still is today. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Susan Wallman. Susan, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you very much. I was listening to you talk about that. Do you know that John and I will start our 18th year together? Wow, that is impressive. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing because I'm thinking 20 years. I've been, gee, yeah, 18 with John, yeah. That's incredible. I'll tell you what else is amazing. I started this podcast back in October of 2020, and I had you on a couple of months later in December. And I've had some pretty good guests. I've had Charles Barkley on. I've had Dusty Baker, Mike Breen, Ian Eagle. But I want you to know that of all the guests that I have had on, you, you, Susan, have received the most downloads. More people have listened to my interview with you than anyone else that I've had on in 15 months. So thank you very much. Wow, anytime. I love doing this. I love doing these things. I didn't say anything controversial. That's not me, right? <laughs> no, no, you didn't. We, we, had, we had so much fun. We had so much fun reminiscing. You know, the one thing I did not ask you, and I, I thought about this, I, I would think that one of the great moments in your life was the first time you were in the broadcast booth at Fenway Park announcing a Yankee Red Sox game. That just had to be surreal. You talked about your mother. You talked about the influence of your grandfather and all the games you went to as a little girl in the 50s. What do you remember the most about that first broadcast at Fenway Park? 
Well, that's really interesting because that was not supposed to happen. That was a television game, and and it was on WPIX on Channel 11 here in New York. I was still working at WFAN. I was still covering the team. It's a long time ago, and it was Bobby Mercer and Phil Rizzuto. And Bobby Mercer had eaten in the Fedway press box and got food poisoning. So he left, and the producer said, go get Susan. She'd love doing this. <laughs> so my first broadcast was me and Phil Rizzuto, wow. who I adored, and it was great. Well, listen to this. This is my first my first game. We're sitting there, and I had known Johnny Pesky, the late Johnny Pesky, wasn't, um, since I was a little girl, since I was four or five years old, and I always called him Uncle Johnny. And Phil Rizzuto and Johnny Pesky were best friends back mm. in, in the day when they used to leave the gloves on the field. So jo uh, Phil and I were telling stories about, you know, the game was going on. I think I gave the score once or twice, but we were just talking about the old days and Ted Williams, and I told Rizzuto that Ted Williams was once told me that the difference between those Yankee teams back then and theirs was Phil Rizzuto. And with all those great hitters, he thought it was Phil Rizzuto. Amazing. Who set the, set the tone. And we were talking about that. In the sixth inning, Phil says, oh, I've got some friends here. I'll be right back. You'll be fine. <laughs> and well. he leaves me in the booth by myself. <laughs> Wow. And we're sitting there, and so I'm doing play-by-play -play and talking to myself. And, you know, talking about when I was a little girl, I sat over there, and, you know, and they, they should, and the producer, whose name was John Moore, just a great producer director, he kept saying, okay, we're going over here now, and here's a, we're going to do a replay. And I did it, and two innings, two innings later, in comes Rizzuto with a box of cannoli <laughs> and sits down, and we're sitting there, and, <laughs> and that was my first game in the booth at wow. Fedway Parks. So, yes, it was memorable for, for many, many reasons, but um, to be able to, no, all kidding aside, to be able to sit there where I was when I was a little girl, I mean, and this is the 50s, sure. and I was a tiny little girl, and to be able to be in that booth, that booth was not there, obviously. That way, probably was very different when I was a little girl. But to be there, and there I was telling stories with Phil Rizzuto, like, like, like I was part of it. And but I knew all those people. I knew Bobby Doerr, and I knew Johnny Pesky, and all of us. And obviously, I knew my my hero, the only one I ever had, was Ted Williams, and I knew them very well from the time I was a child. So there were all kinds of stories that, that we could tell. And I think about it now, and it's the most probably the most surreal thing that's ever happened to me. Um, particularly, you'll be fine. I'll be right back. Unbelievable. I would think that the only way you would get Phil out of the broadcast booth if there was a thunderstorm with lightning. I mean, there was nothing, fun, <laughs> there was nothing funnier than watching a rain delay on WPIX when there was lightning and listening to Scooter. That was an all-time classic. And then he was gone. See, he was at Fenway Park. <laughs> We couldn't leave. No, he would leave the booth. Usually it was three people. Usually it was obviously Bill White and Tom Seaver right. and, and, and Phil. So there were a few of them. But it was just me and Phil. And he said, I've got friends here. I'll be right back. Unbelievable. And he did. And he just left me there. But those are, those are the kinds of things that um, could happen then, probably wouldn't happen today. But it was, yeah. <laughs> so my first broadcast at Fenway Park. But let me tell you, Grant, um, we go into that booth now. I. I never take for granted where I am when I'm in that booth. Mm. It's just, it's something. I look over, and not, not a lot has changed. I mean, a lot has changed, obviously. But this is a, 
you know, a park that I was in from the time I was a mm. shy, tiny little child. There's not a, an inch of that place. I don't know. So it's, it always, um, you know, it's, it's like everybody says, well, what do you feel when you walk into Fenway Park when they're playing the Red Sox? When I walk into Fenway Park, I'm walking down those corridors holding my grandfather's hand. Mm. That never goes away. When they're in Yankee Stadium, it's just another team. But when I'm in Fenway Park, you know, I know I tell players things, you know, over there, let me show you that. That's mm. where Ted Williams used to uh, stand when he wanted to see the pitcher warming up. I mean, things that people don't even think about now. I knew all those things because uh, it was all reported and we were all there. And in, But don't forget also, in the 50s and 60s, no one ever went. So I'd be at the park um, and there'd be 500 people at the park. Can you imagine now? Why that is that? I, you, well, I don't understand that. Why is that? Nobody went. Have you ever seen pictures of Yankee Stadium on mid-afternoon games? No one was there. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. I remember yeah. I remember my dad took me to a Yankee game on my 10th birthday, and they were playing the Detroit Tigers on a weeknight. And I remember the game so vividly because we were sitting in the upper deck on the left field uh, line, and there was a foul ball, and my dad took off, and he came back with the ball. And just recently, just years later, I looked up the box score, and the attendance for that game, there was only 9,800 people mm -hmm. at that game mm -hmm. I was at with the Yankees and the Tigers on uh, my birthday in 1969. That's how about that? So I get that. Well, That's amazing. I, no, I, I, I remember that. And the other thing is that I was actually at that game when Ted Williams hit that final home run. I have my ticket and everything. And everybody in the world says they were there. Look at the box score. Yep. 11,000 people wow. were in the park. What, what? And, that's, and that changed in Boston. The impossible dream team of 1967 changed that forever. And then it became sure. something else when they won the 101 shot with Jim Lomborg and Carl Yastrzemski and uh, those guys. That changed after 90, after 67 is when the crowd started coming. What was the Yankee Red Sox rivalry like when you were at Fenway Park as a little girl? <laughs> Red Sox never won. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they just never sure. won. It was like there was like a big brother would come to town, and and no matter what they did, I mean they won games. I'm not saying they didn't win games, um, but I'll tell you what. When I was really little, I used to take my little brother by the hand, and we'd go down to watch the Yankees get off the bus. Wow, that's what that's what the feeling was. And you'd see Mel Allen would get off in his top hat and, um, you know, and some of them would drive Mickey and uh, Roger Maris in the early sixties were always drive. And some, I guess it was Mickey's convertible. It was a convertible. <laughs> Unbelievable. And it's, and you just, you just did no matter what the Yankees did. And they had, you know, it would come down to the last game of the season. Sure. And, and, or something that was important. And, but the Yankees would always win. It was like the, um, the little brother who kept trying, mm. kept trying and trying, and never could quite win. Never could quite do it. That's what it was like. It was always an event. Don't forget, back then you played. Uh, there were only eight teams in the league, so you played them twenty-two times. Big difference. So you know, you knew the Yankees. They were like bad cousins. They were the cousins <laughs> that you always see that, right. That's that funny. used to beat you up. The one that would take you in the back <laughs> and beat you up. Yeah. That was, <laughs> I, I once did, um, when I first started on the beat, I would do some um, luncheons and things when the Yankees would travel. And I did a lot in Boston. Uh, Cleet Boyer, the great third third baseman, was uh, the Yankees' third base coach at the time. And we would do things in Boston, and these guys were hysterical. Mm. And they were, and, and Cleet would talk about how, remember, there was just, um, the, the there was no monster seats back then. It was just a wall right. and a screen. 
and the balls would go into the screen. And Clint and Cleet once said, well, you know, we really tried to make it competitive. For years, we offered that if it didn't go out of the park, <laughs> it was only a double. It had to go over the screen because we wanted to give you guys a chance. And they really talked about it like that for years. I remember Yogi talking about that in 2004, the first time the Red Sox ever came from behind and, and beat them. And, and Yogi said, listen, we've beaten them for 80 years. It's not going to change <laughs> 80 and years. Then, <laughs> but, but that group really thought that, and no matter what the Red Sox, Ted Williams notwithstanding. It just it just never happened, no matter what. It was just heartbreak, hmm. heartbreak all the time. When I talked to you back in December, you talked about your mom, you talked about your grandfather, and you talked about George Steinbrenner. Do you ever wonder what your career would have been like without George Steinbrenner? Wouldn't have been this, I'll tell you that. Uh, my brother says I would have found <laughs> another way, but I don't think it would have been like this. And it was, and it, it's so typical George. And by the way, it wasn't George just, oh, yeah, all right, go ahead, be in the booth. Um, I'll give you this story, give you that story. Oh, no, oh, no, he was going to, he didn't want to be anywhere near a failure. So he was going to make sure that I um, worked hard. I, You know, somebody once said, you know, Susan might not be the best, but nobody is going to outwork her ever. And that's kind of a big, big compliment. And, I, you know, you, you, you find another way in life if that's what you want to do. But I think a lot of the choices I made, well, because of George. So I would have been doing, you know, I would have been doing something else. We all would have been doing something else. You know, anybody whose who's path crossed with George Steinbrenner, um, he affected them greatly. Everybody. I don't know a cer- anybody whose life hasn't been changed if they got to know him by George Steinbrenner. You also talked about a lot of the good with George, that he, you know, he was obviously, you know, a, a very impulsive, fiery guy. We know about the Billy Martin and the way he ran the team and the boss and all of that. But you knew the other side of George Steinbrenner. What was that side like? You talked about you had to know the names of the ushers, the concessionaires, the parking attendants. Like, that was so important to George. What was the good part of George Steinbrenner? Well, there were a lot of things, and I don't know if we, we talked about this, but um, that was another thing. That I, you, I'm glad you brought that up because now you walk by people and, you know, everybody's got their heads in their phones and nobody says hello and nobody says how are you. If you walked into the office and you just said to um, an assistant somewhere, good morning, you'd hear George, what's her name, Susan? <laughs> That's beautiful. And you, and you'd have to do it again. I, and, I, and everybody, but that was, um, I always kidded George that he was running the biggest mom and pop store in the history of the world. Hmm. Because everybody did know everybody's, and it made for a very, very different kind of atmosphere. But uh, I'll tell you, Grant, and I don't remember if I told you this before, but every year there's at least one or two people that still, after all these years, will stop me um, coming in and saying, Miss Waldman, I just wanted um, to tell you my dad was one of the um, kids that Mr. Steinbrenner put through college because wow. he's the one who started the Silver Shield and uh, kids from, um, if he read in the paper that a firefighter had been killed, all of a sudden that family had a college fund. And uh, my favorite story was, um, as a left-handed pitcher who lived in Florida, his name is Tony Fossis, long retired, but he was a Red Sox and a Yankee. And Tony one day came to me and he said, can you find something out for me? And I said, what? And he said, I think Mr. Steinbrenner put me through school. Hmm. And George Steinbrenner um, had a, a thing at, at one of the Florida colleges. And if you were a student athlete, but you got really good grades, and you're an athlete, and it's someone who obviously needed it and couldn't afford it, he had a scholarship for those kinds of people. 
and he would never tell anybody that he did it. But they all knew that he was putting people through, and he and he said, "Can you find out if I was one of them?" And he gave me a note, and I went to George, and um, this is when this is George. Um, I said, George, Tony Fawcett just asked me, did you give him a scholarship to Florida State or whatever it is? And he said, I'm not talking about that, Waldman. What have I always told you about charity? <laughs> and I said, George, you always say that um, anonymity is the highest form of charity. And he said, and it's in your Bible, the New Testament. It's in your, the Old Testament. It's in your Bible. And he wouldn't talk. And I said, he just wants to say thank you. <laughs> and I gave him the note. And he read it. And then he went outside the door. And he went and he, he talked to him. But he met him. But, right. um, but that's what he would do. And I still really, Grant, I still to this day, and he's been gone 10 years, and and I still to this day get kids of someone that George put through school. I don't know who to say thank you to, Miss Waldman. I just wanted you to know, I think my dad was one. That's amazing. That's that's a, a great story. That's the, that's the other side of George. There's another story. There's another one. George was... When George was suspended, I think it was 1990, it was right around there, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, obviously when you're suspended from baseball, you can't use your owner's tickets to go to playoffs or, or World Series or anything. He calls me one day, it's in uh, September, and he said, uh, is your father still alive? I said, yeah. Well, what's the address? And I gave <laughs> him the address and he hangs up. And three days later, my father calls me and says, um, I've got tickets to the playoff game, the Red Sox in Oakland at Whoa. Fenway Park. George sent my, oh my father gosh. his tickets. Didn't ask me. He just hung up. <laughs> so I'm looking on television, and there's my father and his best friend sitting, like, in the first row. <laughs> Classic. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, that, see, that's George. Never asked. Just did it. I mean, what am I going to do with these tickets? What am I going to do with these tickets? Oh, yeah. But that, that's the other part of that's the other part of George, and I am not alone in these kinds of stories. And trust me, I was on the other end of those screaming phone calls too. You know, you really messed up this time, Waldman. That's it for you, and hang up the phone. Yeah, no, I was on the other end of those. <laughs> oh my gosh, these stories are just See, amazing. This is never going to happen again, is it? No. All these larger than life characters that run teams and and media running around like. You know, chickens with our heads cut off, try to get a quote from them. Those things are never going to happen again, are they? No, no. It's uh, we're, we're in a different era. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I didn't realize this. I want to take you away from the Yankees, and I want to take you to a day that I remember vividly, the World Series earthquake game in 1989. And I was driving from Sacramento with my cameraman from my TV station that I was working at. And we were driving on I-80 through Berkeley. And if you remember, it was just the most beautiful, gorgeous fall day. Mm-hmm. And I said to Cody... My cameraman, I said, you know what? When the big earthquake hits, I sure as hell hope I'm not on that bridge. And I pointed to the Bay Bridge. And I, when mm-hmm. that, Susan, I had never been in an earthquake before. And I was sitting in the auxiliary press box upstairs in the upper deck of Candlestick. Yep. And I will tell you, yep. when that earth, first thing I heard, I thought people were stomping their feet first. And then I looked to the left and I saw the plexiglass in the press box moving back and forth. And then my seat literally started to sway left and right, left and right. Yep. And I, I watched it. I yep. watched you. I watched that happen oh, to you. Yep. I, I will tell you, Susan, I thought the stadium was going to collapse and I thought I was going to die in that moment. Again, I had never been in an earthquake. And if you remember, after everything was over, all the fans started cheering. 
they were like cheering. And, and back then, there were no cell phones, Susan. So people didn't realize the severity until the radio had reports of what happened on the Bay Bridge and the Nimitz Freeway and the Marina District. What do you remember the most from that? <laughs> that earthquake made my career. You want to know why? Why? Because my phone did not go out. I was on the air. Wow. I was on the air, and I was talking to our pregame host at WFAN, which was Gary Cohen at the time. Oh, wow. Who was the longtime voice of the, of the Mets. Sure. And they still play it every now and then. Um, I, I was on the air. My phone didn't go out, and the reporter, a reporter from Chicago by the name of Les Grobstein, if you have a cross, he's sure. been around for as long as we have, too. Yep. Um, his phone didn't go out either. He says he's still got nail marks from me. With my with my fingers in his arm, mm. but our phones did not go out. I was on the air the whole time, and I remember starting. and They play it every now and then, and I remember saying the only thing I remember saying was, "This is as scared as I've ever been in my life." And I started to um, describe. There was a guy. I don't. Oh no! It was on the other side of the football box, so you couldn't have seen it. It was above you. There was a guy trying to put a windsock on one of the stanchions that come up out of that football press box, which is the auxiliary press mm-hmm. box that you were talking. We thought you guys were going over. I was in the upper deck behind home plate, and it was right there. And I, and I remember seeing the televisions move and knew exactly what it was. And you know what my first thought was? We're on top. It's going to come down, but we're going to be okay because we're going to be on top of everything. Mm. Nothing's going to come down um, on top of us. I mean, that's the first thought. And then I started talking. Because I realized that I was still on the air. And I said, um, this is as scared as I've ever been. I described the guy on the windsock with the windsock holding on to the stanchion. Um, I described everybody there. One seat collapsed. Do you remember that, Grant? I sure do. And the guy had gone to get a hot dog. Yep. There was one seat. So wherever you were, whatever happened there, that's the place you wanted to be in an earthquake was in Candlestick Park. But I remember the television swaying. And I remember talking about it and describing everybody. And I was down and afterwards, um, after you know, people started leaving. But don't forget, <laughs> I, I had no way of getting back. We had no idea what we were going to do. Sure. I was on the air for a long time. I watched Ricky Henderson come out with his mother. And we were talking to people. And there were so many people there milling around. And I think the applause was for the fact that we all didn't die. I agree. I remember them clapping. I think that's what it was. It's over. Yep. And then what happens? And I was just standing there outside about an hour after afterwards, and everybody had pretty much gone. And I'm standing outside of Candlestick Park, realizing I had I don't know anybody, and I have no idea how I'm going to get back to the city. And um, a guy named Henry Hecht, he was a writer for Newsday and the New York Post. He found me standing there, and I said, "We got a car." And um, there was somebody driving, and uh, Ira Burkow from the New York Times it took us three hours to get back from, That's right. from Candlestick Park yep. through through the city. Um, but I got up the next morning. Um, our hotel, which I think it's gone now, I think it was it was at Union Square. I think that particular hotel is gone. But <clears throat> at the it had no lights, but the phones worked. So I was on the phone with WFAN like all night. And then I woke mm. up at five in the morning and hitchhiked out to the Nimitz. And well, I did, a, I did city side for a, a few weeks and that was uh, until, you know, stayed there. It was really something, but um, that was actually 1989. That was the first time I was ever taken seriously as a reporter of any kind. How about that? That's a great story. I remember being in the parking lot with my 
photographer and we had one of those cell phones that was connected it looked like a car battery that it was a big right, right, and right. and we yeah. had and and I'll never forget that it was pe- in a suitcase right yeah, it was yes, like in a little pretty suitcase pretty much yeah. yes and there were people literally the line went on forever for people to get to the payphone because by then everyone had heard the severity of the earthquake via their radio. And we had literally had people begging us and pay, offering us large sums of money to borrow our phone. And we couldn't do it because at that point we became a news crew. And my cameraman and I went to downtown San Francisco and started reporting on the areas of the city that were damaged. And I don't believe I got back right. to Sacramento. I, I want to say by the time we had to go over the Golden Gate Bridge, north on 101 and cut over that way because obviously the Bay Bridge was closed. I, don't, I know we didn't get back till 8 or 9 in the morning, but I'll never forget that, Susan. I'll never forget sitting in that chair and honestly thinking, that's it. I'm going to die here, and yep. everyone in the world is going to see this because it's on TV. That's what was going through my mind. Well, and, and, and if you could have seen what the – and they called it the football press box, if I remember, yep. right? Is yes. that where you were? That's, uh, yep. And from what, I, from what we saw from where we were, I was right behind home plate but up in the upper deck. And it was all the people that, you know, from out of town, mostly out of town uh-huh. uh, and some extraneous. And I remember thinking that that thing's going over because yep. I thought it was going straight, straight over. But I did not know you were in there. I know there. I, I remember during that night, um, wives of a lot of the writers were calling into WFAN. And so I had to give um, updates on where everybody was. And I remember saying, we're all safe. Everybody's fine. Mm. And we are, and there were like seven or eight of us and that were beat writers. And, and uh, I said, we're all fine and, and don't worry about anything. And these, and, and that's what uh, we did to make sure that everybody was safe. That was, that was something mm. I when I hitchhiked out to the Nimitz, um, I remember and you had to have a press pass to, to get in the area. I showed them my World Series pass, so they just let me in. So I just yeah. said, "All right, I have to do this." And I had my remember those old Morantz um, uh, tape recorders, not the little ones. You know, they hold oh, them yes. in your hand now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big yeah. thing. It looks yeah. like a pocketbook. Yeah. And that's what I had. And you know, and then and they said, "Okay." And I remember policemen um, saying that was a car and looking at little bits of metal with blood and that. Talk about the small world of, of baseball and how you used to become friends with people. That's how I became huh. friends with Dave Stewart. Wow. Because Dave Stewart was out there. He brought a generator out to the Nimitz so that the policemen could have hmm. and the rescue workers could have coffee. Wow. How about that? Man, these are great stories. You mentioned Ricky Henderson a couple of minutes ago, I had the most fascinating experience. I was in Oakland. Uh, the Yankees were playing, and I was standing uh, behind the backstop because there were no seats behind home plate back then. And I was standing there, and Ricky Henderson was not playing. And Ricky literally comes out in the middle of the game. Again, he wasn't playing, but he was in uniform. And he comes, and he mm-hmm. just stands right next to me, and we start talking. And he was telling me about his thigh muscles and how people don't understand what it's like you know, for him and his leg injuries. And it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. We, we probably talked for like 30 minutes. And then I had a chance to interview Ricky a couple times in spring training when he was with the A's. I find him to be fascinating. And as you know, he always talked in the third person, which I got a kick out of. But what what do you tell me? Any good stories with Ricky? I can. It's funny. You're bringing up all these people. Ricky was actually my first friend in the Yankee locker room. Wow. I, I, I love Ricky. Ricky was the first person who ever asked me anything about myself. Hmm. And, um, you know, the first player, because players don't, they're nice, or they decide. I remember Ricky, this is 1987, the end of the year. 
and he said, uh, so, so why are you doing this? And he saw, you know, they all saw what was going on. I was, I was treated okay in the Yankee clubhouse, but not in a lot of other ones. Why do you do this? And I said, when we get to Boston, I'm going to show you something. And we got to Boston, and I, I took him over to where I used to sit with my grandfather, which um, at the time, it was before they redid all the stadium, and I, his first row behind the Red Sox on deck circle, and you literally could touch the players. And I said, now sit here, now look up, and pretend you're four years old. Hmm. And he got it, but I've got a great Ricky story, one, and there are plenty of them. There's, there's millions of them. But my favorite one, when the Yankees traded him back to Oakland, and this is after the Bash brothers. Ricky was one of the last people that <laughs> that was still there. This is after Larusa left, you know, for St. Louis with McGuire and all that stuff. And I came in there and I went over to Ricky, and he was sitting at a table, and I said. Gosh, I used to know where everybody sat, and I used to know everyone in this clubhouse, and I could tell you whose locker was there. Who do I introduce myself to? And he looked around, and this is Ricky near the end of his career, before he got traded, before he went to the Mets and stuff. And um, he looked around, and he said, nobody. And I said, what do you mean nobody? And he said, they all think the what you're supposed to do is get here. And just think about that. Well, they all think that the goal is to get here. And then he said, no, I'm wrong. Go introduce yourself to that skinny, blonde kid in the corner. And that was Jason Giambi. Wow. How Ricky, about that? I, I, he's one of my favorite human beings in the world. I did get to know his mother. His mother's name is Bobby. And I think she was a nurse. And she was, um, it, it, I, there's a lot to Ricky. Mm-hmm. Even if, and he made sure we were actually in Oakland when he set the the stolen base. Yep, record. that's correct. I was at did that game. Did you know he had? You what? I was at that game. Okay. Did you get the little things he passed out? No. I was there. No, I did not. Okay. He had little certificates, um, and it says I was there, and it has a place for your name and the date, and uh, when Ricky Henderson broke Lou Brock's all-time stolen, he had them sitting there, and everybody got them on the way out that game. And I went into the clubhouse the next day, and he had saved one for me. How about he was, that? He was, yeah, I'm, and I'm looking at it now, actually. It was May 1st, 1991. Uh-huh. Incredible. <laughs> Just amazing. I'm so happy you, that— You know yeah. what? This is, the, this is, you know, we're talking about stories, and I keep saying that it's different now. These are stories that, because of, you know, the way everything is set up, um, I, I mean, I can't even imagine what the stories were like when the writers actually went on trains with guys. Sure. And they were there all the time. This is because I traveled with the team. Well, you made a great point, though, pre-cell phone, pre-social media, where people actually used to talk to one another and you would want to get to know about people and you would go out to dinner and you didn't have to worry about camera phones. I will tell you, in the last several years of covering the NBA, Susan, players didn't even leave the hotel anymore because they can't, because everyone's trying to get them in trouble and, you know, get them doing things that they're not supposed to on their camera phones. And they, they, the players used to now get on, I'm telling you, you wouldn't believe this. Players get on the team plane now with their Xboxes and everything and they literally get together and they play video games instead of going out anymore. So, yeah, I think that's part of it. I just think cell phones, social media has changed a lot of things in sports. I really do. Well, no, it really has because you never know. And the guys, and of course, uh, with baseball, you're with them every single day, every you know, week mm-hmm. after week, month after month for years. I mean, it's eight months and it's, you're there. And, and really, you never know who is filming you. No, you don't even know in a clubhouse anymore. No, you don't. 
You know, you don't know who's got, they try and say, put your cell phone away or you can't do that in here. You have to go out. But you don't know who's there. I see films that get out that I ha- I don't know how they did it. And this started a long time ago. I remember years and years ago, Derek Jeter was the first person I ever saw. Like when you'd come into the hotel, can I take a picture with you? And he'd say, well, when we go outside. Hmm. And players started to do that because people can doctor things, I guess. Photoshop, I guess they, they do, but it's but it, it's changed the way the game has covered because you never know who's recording it. You never know who's sitting there with a with a phone, hmm. and and what's going to happen. And it really has changed. And I know that that's exactly what you see, guys. Now they've got their headsets on, and they're not. Um, you know, I'm not saying they do this on the bus. They do sit and talk about baseball and things, but not like it used to be. They don't go out to dinner anymore unless they're, you know, protected sure. by uh, security guys, and, and you just don't see that anymore. It's too bad. It's too bad. I, yeah. Mm. It makes it much more insular. And baseball is not a sport that is should be insular because it's too everyday and it's too connected to people. One of my favorite Yankees was Don Mattingly. I just love the way he approached the game, and I never met Don, but he always seemed to be, and I hate to use the word perfect because there is no such thing as a perfect person, but he was, to me, that guy. What was it like being around him? It, that's, that's, <laughs> did I give you a list of all these people? Don <laughs> Mattingly, you know, Don Mattingly will always was and always will be my favorite New York Yankee. The wow. Perfect New York Yankee. Favorite. And Don, Don Mattingly, um, was the perfect Yankee. Everybody, nobody has a bad word to say about Don. The way he related to people was great. I never saw, you know, I know everybody works, but Donnie really worked. I mean, he really was not the most, he didn't come with these, you know, he's not these guys. He said, oh, this is going to be a superstar. You know, when Don came up to the big leagues, um, Billy was the manager and he was going to platoon him. Hmm. He didn't think he could hit lefties, and it was only because this is why Don Mattingly wears number eight. I bet you don't know this. He wears number eight because Yogi Berra, who took over for for um, Billy Martin, said, "No, no, no, you're not platooning. You're playing every day." And he became Don Mattingly because of, he thinks because of Yogi Berra. He How probably would have done it anyway. But but that's that's what that is all about. And just the way Don handled. People, I have not seen anybody do it like that. Don Mattingly was the first guy I saw. You know, you'd get off traveling with the Yankees is like traveling with a rock band. And you'd get off and it's four in the morning and people are out there at the hotel with their little kids (laughs) and all that. And, you know, little kids, they give them to, you know, get signed or whatever. And Donnie, you know, at five in the morning, and oh my God, leave me alone. But Donnie would never do that. If there were little kids there, um, he would tussle the little kid's hair. He's the first guy I ever saw do this. This is 87-ish. And he would tussle the guy's hair. And if it was a real fan, the kid would go crazy and just wouldn't care if he didn't mm-hmm. sign. But if it was a, you know, a ringer, a guy to get, you know, he didn't care about that. But Don, you know, the, the idea of Don Mattingly, the very famous thing where he grabbed the popcorn from the kids after he, after he caught a foul right. ball. I don't know right. if you've seen it. Yes, of that course. That's, that's Don Mattingly. Um, the saddest thing ever was that he never got to the next year after he retired was the year the Yankees won the World Series. And yep. that that is part of his legacy. It, it would haunt me. It haunts me now that Donnie never did that. In 95, the introductions in the in the uh, series to the, the wild card when Buck Showalter was was manager um, the introductions because they hadn't been in the playoffs in so long. So I thought the stadium was coming down 
when mm. when Johnny came out. They started with Buck, and they got really excited. And by the time they got to Don Mattingly, um, that was <laughs> you know, I thought the place was going to come down. He he always had a way of making a situation right. And by the way, as a team captain, and I don't know if a lot of people know all this, um, he was as good a captain as ever. There's no Bernie Williams without Don Mattingly. Because uh, it was Don Mattingly who went to Bernie Williams after. Because they used to pick on Bernie when he came up. Really? Guys. Wow. I didn't know oh, that. Oh, yeah. They used to call him Bambi. Well, he was, you know, he was different. He played music. Yep. And he had big Coke bottle glasses. And, um, you know, and, and Donnie went to him once when he was, you know, really upset. He was in a corner afterwards. And they'd, they'd call him Bambi. And they'd make fun of him. Not everybody. A couple of guys. They were gone the next year. And Paul O'Neill was there, which was a much better, <laughs> much better group. Um, but Donnie was the one that went over to him and said, you belong here, Bernie. You're going to have to do it. But you belong here. And don't let this stop you. And if you talk to Bernie Williams, he'll tell you he doesn't know what would have happened if there's no Don Mattingly there. The other thing that Don Mattingly is responsible for is Buck Showalter. Because Buck Showalter was a Yankee first baseman. He's a little older than Dottie. And he was at Nashville when a young Donald Arthur Mattingly walked into the double A. Wow. And Buck said to himself, I can't play with this guy. Hmm. I can't. I'm never going to make it. Look at this. And so Buck right then and there started, I, I better do something else with my life. And they've been friends now. Now that's, well, 45 years ago. That's, cra- that's amazing. Ago. Wow. That's a great story. You've had so many amazing moments, uh, you know, being in the New York sports scene at WFAN since 87 and then with the Yankees for all of these years. Is it fair to even ask you, do you have a favorite moment covering the Yankees, one that's just a little bit better than the rest? I would have to say it was the whole season of 96, that first World Series. Mm-hmm. I was standing with Mr. Steinbrenner when the ball went up in the air and uh, Charlie Hayes caught it. And that and the, the look of joy on George's face and the stuff that followed after that. You know, this was a year it was, um, you know, nothing, none, none of this was supposed to happen. Not with 96, that mm-hmm. team, none of it was supposed to happen. And that was a very close-knit team. And um, you know, it was a first for a lot of us. And I think that whole year, but there were moments. I mean, you know, I watched Jim Abbott throw a no hitter. I mean, that's I, I, amazing. Can you imagine? No, that's I mean, incredible. I watched that. Right. It was just an incredible thing. I, I watched Doc Gooden with his father dying in a hospital come back um, in '96 and throw a no hitter. Um, I was there when Derek Jeter had his 3,000th hit, and I cried mm. through the whole game. Um, those kinds of things—they're personal moments. They're not necessarily great baseball moments. Uh, but they're personal things because of the relationships that everybody had and what the people were. I mean, if you can't get tears in your eyes when you watch Jim Abbott throw a no-hitter, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not a human being. And to be sitting there, just sitting there and watching this happen. And um, just there were some incredible moments like that. But I think of the they're not, you know what I mean, Grant? They're not baseball moments. You know, that's, <laughs> I understand exactly are, what you but mean. They're not. Sure. They're human being moments. That's correct. Uh, when Jeter had his 3,000th hit, which was a home run, by the way, Jeter and Jorge Posada used to do this great. Jeter had two smiles. He had a smile for us, which was great. Mm-hmm. And he had a different smile for his family. And when he hit the 3,000th hit, when he ran around the bases, he looked up at that suite. And there they were. Um, Dr. Charles and Dottie and his sister and, um, and his nephew. And he looked up and there was that smile that we don't see except somebody caught it on camera. Mm-hmm. 
and there is a great picture of Gina, which I cannot look at without getting tears in my eyes. Because, they, you know what I mean? You know, they have two different personalities. They're almost the same, but not really. And there is a picture, it's very iconic, of, of Derek with a smile looking up. And that's the smile that was only saved for a mom and dad and a sister. And there it was. And that was, you know, I remember that moment, like, I can still see it. I absolutely can still see it. So those are personal moments, but they're baseball moments. And that's what baseball is, isn't it? Uh, you're, you hit it right on the head. Uh, and I've had similar experiences in covering the NBA because, you know, I don't think a lot of fans understand this, but you really are part of the team, but you 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 know everyone's yep. life and you know you know their wives and you know about their kids and you know when there's a family problem and you know when somebody is sick, you know when there's a death in the family. And you you yep. you grow close to a lot of these people and it's the individual achievements that to me I've always put ahead of the team achievements in terms of how I look at it from a satisfaction point of view because you know truly how much it means to that person and you are genuinely so happy with them so i'm with you i get it i get it 100 percent. absolutely correct and that's and that's also in basketball when i started doing basketball there weren't any charters we sat in airports with yeah, those guys me too and that's the, you know you'd have <laughs> right. you, know, you know i used to go in at rick patino and ask me if i wanted to go break down tape with him or watch him break down <laughs> tape and you know that's great and that's amazing this and back then there were only 12 of them yep so you knew everybody. You knew everybody's life. You were sitting, you know, like a regular people. You'd sit in an airport during, you know, you from New York to Cleveland. We'd sit for seven hours in LaGuardia yep. waiting to get out. You know, you'd see another team landing when you took off, and you knew everybody. It was it was very different. But once you once you do this as a profession, I think, and see if you agree with me, Grant. I think what happens is that you you don't root for teams. You root for people. Great point. And but- and I think that's exactly, you know, what what happens when you do this game and you in your because you you can't you can't be a fan quote unquote anymore. You know, we do better. Obviously, we have an easier time when the team is winning. I'm not going to sure, get anybody about that. Of course, but you root for people. And that's how you keep your objectivity. And there are people on other teams I root for too. I mean, there there really sure. are. Me too. But there, but that's what that is. But you know, that's how you keep objectivity, and that's how you remember moments. I rem- and those are the kinds of things that stay with you. I remember the moments. You know, the NBA rule back then, Susan. You know this very well. But if you had the, a back to back, you had to take the first flight out the next morning. And right. It- yes. Right, and it didn't matter what time. If it was six a.m., you know, you would do a game, get back to the hotel, you know, and then you'd have to be at the airport to get on that six a.m. flight. Those were some days, and those those were some great memories. And when I hear players now bitch and complain about certain things as it relates to traveling, Draymond Green, remember? I don't know if you remember this. Two weeks ago, they yeah, were playing, right? And he was complaining because they had to travel the day of to go play the Knicks. And I'm just going, oh my oh gosh, my somebody needs to pull him aside and let him know what it was like. You know, back well, when can the, you imagine yeah. these guys now having to sit on a plane with real people? No, no. Don't forget, there were only twelve that's, of them. That's correct. And, here's, and you know, and, and three coaches. That's it. That's you know, right. Patino, and he had two assistants. Yep. And we'd sit there, and you have to sit in the airport, and you have to put your seatbelt <laughs> on, and nobody's bringing you drinks. That's right. And they were actually, it was a whole. It really was a different thing. It and, really was a. 
And those days were those days were amazing. And, and by the way, they didn't stay. I don't know about you guys. We didn't stay in Four Seasons back. Oh then. no, 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 no. And here's the other deal. I don't know if a lot of fans realize this. <laughs> I don't know about out of New York, but out of Sacramento, there was no such thing as anything other than a seven thirty seven or you know a Super eighty jet with not many first class seats, and that was all by seniority. So you'd have four That's or five right. guys sitting in coach, and it didn't matter if you were seven feet tall. You know, if, if you if that's if you were a first year player or a second year player to the back of the plane, buddy, and that's just the way it was. No, that's exactly right. And how about the days where we had to when they played at the Cow Palace? And you had to go there and you had to stay at that place in Oakland. <laughs> Those two places that yeah. were yeah. All right, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's a little different now. It's, it's a, a little, little different. different now. <laughs> it is a little Gosh. different. Uh, you are. You absolutely now, I don't crack want this me up. Sound like get off my lawn, you know? No, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I like the charters too. But it really was. Yeah. It really was different. You know, they, they didn't have special meals. No. They didn't bring hydrating drinks. <laughs> you got what was on the plate. Right. Which which very often was nothing. <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hey, listen, I can't tell you how much I just enjoy talking with you. You are just such a phenomenal person, and your stories are amazing. I, I, I shouldn't even tell you this. I've actually listened to the podcast that I did with you probably. <laughs> I've I, No, really. I go for walks all the time, and I've probably listened to that interview I did with you in December of 2020 five or six times because every time I listen to it I hear something a little bit different and I laugh and I get a you put a smile on my face so for that I thank you very much oh thank you I just I just hope that you know the guys that are replacing us and the people that are replacing us I just wish that they could um know what this was like because it's something because of the way we live and the, because of yep. the world we're in isn't going to happen and I feel bad a lot you know it's <laughs> I really do I really you know I still you know you i'm sure you do too i don't have the phone numbers of the current yankees i have everybody sure. I still have everybody's name from 96 and the guys in the 80s i <laughs> right. sure do yeah well i hope that you and john get back on the road i hope you you know hopefully i hope they get the labor situation worked out but that's beyond everybody's control but i really hope that you guys can get back on the road i can't even imagine how difficult it is calling baseball on a monitor and again i'm not i'm not you have a great job you have a great life but i just think calling baseball from afar off a monitor has got to be the most difficult i said to somebody uh this year um i just i said to john because i i would I did not go to Yankee Stadium during the away games. I had a studio set up in my house. Wow. So it was even worse. I was in Westchester. John was in Yankee Stadium during the, the road games. And I was on a, a Comrex, which, you know, which, sure. Is, sure. which is a tele, you know, a, a, you know, a, an audio thing. And uh, I remember after one game in Texas, <laughs> um, Corey Kluber threw a no-hitter. And I remember after the game, I said, John, I just called a no-hitter from my living room. I can do anything. <laughs> I love it. That is great. Well, listen, you take care of yourself. It is so phenomenal to be able to reminisce and share these stories. And I can't thank you enough again for coming on the podcast, Susan. Thank you so much. Oh, anytime, Grant. Happy, happy New Year and happy New Year to everybody out there. Well, how freaking awesome was that? I could speak to Susan Waldman all day long. What a great storyteller. Truly one of my favorite podcasts that I have done. I loved having her on last December, and that conversation that you just listened to, uh, phenomenal. I cannot thank her enough. All right, time now to get to our Crowd Ultra Q&A. Just go to CrowdUltra.com, and maybe I will answer your question right here on my podcast. Alan asks, is it riskier... To gamble on games because of COVID. 
Alan, isn't gambling risky anyway? Isn't it why it's called gambling? David wants to know, who's your favorite current broadcaster in the MLB, NFL, NBA, and NHL? That's a great question. It really is. If you're talking local or national, we'll go national here. I love Joe Buck doing MLB. I think he's a great, great baseball announcer. I really do. Uh, NFL, I will take uh, Iron Eagle. Uh, NBA, I will go with uh, Mike Breen or Kevin Harlan. And in the NHL, it was uh, Doc Emmerich. Boy, I don't really have a favorite uh, NHL announcer, but it was Doc Emmerich uh, until he retired. What else is on your bucket list, Chase asked. I want to go watch a game at Lambeau Field. That's on my bucket list still, and I think I will do that. Uh, Tristan wants to know, do you ever think about leaving, or did you ever think about leaving the Kings before you were let go? Well, technically, I resigned. I wasn't let go. And uh, no, I never thought about leaving the Kings. It never once entered my mind. Good question. Rob wants to know, is Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady your NFL MVP? Will you put those two? Uh, I would go Aaron Rodgers. He's clearly my MVP over Tom Brady. I mean, Brady was shut out by the New Orleans Saints 9 nothing, was he not? I can't go with that as my MVP. David wants to know, Grant, would have you canceled the Winter Classic game because of the minus 9 weather? No. It's hockey. It's played on ice. All of these guys played on, you know, frozen ponds growing up for the most part in cold, cold, cold weather. No, I would not have uh, canceled the game. Julian wants to know, will Antonio Brown get another chance to play in the NFL? I hope not. He doesn't deserve to get another chance to play in the NFL. Stay tuned for my rant. Christian wants to know, did the NCAA playoff games disappoint you? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And I did a rant on this. You know, Cincinnati should not have been in the Final Four. And Michigan, I mean, come on. Big Ten once again showing up on a big stage against the SEC. And what happens? They fall flat on their face. Nick asks, are the Rangers one of the three best teams in the NHL right now? Right now, they are. I think they have, what, 48 or 49 points? So, yeah, right now I think they are one of the three best teams. Colin wants to know, do you expect Luka to pass Dirk as the greatest Mavs player? I do not. I I don't think he will. Uh, Jay wants to know, have you seen the rumors that the Lakers considered trading Westbrook to the Kings in the offseason. Yeah, I mean, I saw it along with, you know, everyone else. Ricky wants to know, what's your take on the MLB Network firing Ken Rosenthal because he criticized Manfred? They didn't fire him. They didn't renew his expiring contract. Uh, I think it's a joke. I think it's uh, Ken Rosenthal uh, is one of the best, uh, plain and simple, but he was not fired. Peter wants to know, will Jimmy G or Trey Lance start against the Rams? I think it's going to be Lance. I know both have been sharing reps in practice this week. Gut feeling, I think it's going to be Lance. I just, I'm looking at the thumb injury and what everyone is saying. I just don't know how you can play effectively with an injury like that on the throwing hand. I really don't. Jeff wants to know, what do you expect out of Clay Thompson once he returns? Well, I hope he stays healthy for the rest of the year. I mean, Clay can shoot. Clay's going to be very good. I think he's going to be good. I really do, and I hope so. Freddie wants to know, will a team sign Ben Roethlisberger next season? I don't see it. I really don't. Tony wants to know, do you agree with Tom Brady that the public should be compassionate 
and empathetic towards Antonio Brown. No, I do not agree with him at all. I don't think the public should be compassionate at all for Antonio Brown. Why should they be compassionate? Why? Kevin asked, does it surprise you Deshaun Watson did not play at all this season? No, I'm not surprised. Alex wants to know, are the Bulls the best team in the East? Mm. Alex, that's what the playoffs are for. That's what the playoffs are for. Corey wants to know, are you surprised they're saying Matt Rule isn't going to be fired? No, because of the amount of money he makes. What is he, in his second year? I think they'll give him one more year. And that is our Crowd Ultra Q&A. Just go to CrowdUltra.com and maybe I'll answer the question right here on the podcast. It's time for Grant. Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento. For your plumbing needs and repairs, just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing.com. You know, enough of Antonio Brown and those that are coming to his defense because of the text message exchange between him and Bruce Arians leading up to the game in New York regarding his ankle. Here's the bottom line. Regardless of whether Brown's ankle was hurt or not hurt, regardless of whether he could have played or should not have played or whatever the case is, what he did on Sunday in New York was an embarrassment. It's an absolute disgrace. His antics, his showboating, taking off his uniform, throwing it into the stands, you know, doing his gestures towards the crowd and then going public with everything. The guy is an embarrassment. He's a disgrace, and he is an absolute bad look for the National Football League. And regardless of what the real story is with his ankle, as I said, his antics and his behavior, not only on Sunday, but for the last several years, has been embarrassing. It's been a disgrace. What he did in Pittsburgh, quitting on the team, quitting on the Raiders, his act in New England, his act in Tampa, he is just... A guy that, in my opinion, should not be playing in the National Football League. He's an embarrassment. He's a bad look for the league. He's had way too many chances. In my opinion, he's lost his right and his privilege to play in the National Football League. And if there is a team that is thinking of signing Antonio Brown, shame on you. Shame on you. And that's my rant for today. Once again, my thanks to Susan Waldman. Great conversation. Appreciate you listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.